0: I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and you are listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Today I'm really pleased to be connecting with the Reverend Dr. William Seth Adams. I have been blessed in my life with a number of wise teachers whose lessons have lasted me a lifetime. Bill is one of those teachers for me. He is retired now, but he was our professor of liturgics at the Seminary of the Southwest, which means that he taught us about leading worship in the Christian community. It's been a really long time since we connected, but I reached out to Bill at his home in Whidbey Island, Washington, and to my delight, he agreed to join me for a conversation today. Bill, thank you so much.
1: I can only share for your delight, Mary when you wrote to me about this opportunity, I think I grinned all day long. It's a joy to be retired as I am now 15 years, but have students like you remember that I was there once upon a time and (laughs) let me be here again once upon a time. So thank you. I appreciate it very much.
0: Absolutely. I have been really delighted that we were going to get to have this conversation. I told all my friends. (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to get to talk with Bill.
1: (laughs) Me too. I did too.
0: (laughs) So Bill and I thought that we would enjoy discussing a topic that captivates both of our interests, which is liturgical architecture. I find it fascinating to think about how space influences us, and it even has the power to shape our faith, how we worship, what we believe to be true about God. It can be really impactful. Bill, I think it was you that taught me that if a worship space is well-designed, a visitor should be able to walk into the empty building and know something about the faith of the people who worship there.
1: I think that's true. If the innocent worshiper who wanders in has some um, the ability to see, physically able to see, of course, but mm-hmm. I also mean metaphorically, that is to get it, understand, and say, looking at the space, oh, oh, I see. Because there are focal points, and they have a relationship, an ecology, as it were, and being able to read that and understand it will teach something about the faith of the people who worship there. Some years ago, I had a sabbatical in which I toured what were then relatively new Episcopal churches to see the extent to which revision of the prayer book had informed the building of liturgical spaces. I was rewarded in many instances, but the thing that struck me was how marginal baptismal spaces were in these buildings. I would ask them would anyone coming into this room know that you are a baptizing community? And well, first of all, they had to figure out what I was talking about. And then they understood that this incidental bowl that they brought out and put on a pedestal on certain days, usually Thursday afternoon, was an insignificant marker for the fundamental character of baptism. It's things like that that seems to me, if you can read the room, you'll know something about the faith of the people. And as you have said in your remarks just now, the room has a great bearing on what we come to believe in our prayers in that place.
0: So the space matters, and there are certain things that we're looking for in Christian worship spaces. The baptismal font, the altar, Mm -hmm. the pulpit, how even the community is arranged. How do worshipers sit? How those things relate to one another, inform us about the faith of the community.
1: You have heard me refer to the old church seating arrangement as a bus. It's just not the best way to be in a place together if you want to have a sense of access to each other and proximity, and you wouldn't set it up that way if you imagined that it had a social character to it. And liturgy clearly has a social character to it. And I have tried diligently in my consulting to argue against the recreation of buses
0: but most of us have grown up in the buses. I'd be interested to talk about the spaces that have helped to shape our own faith. Trinity Episcopal Church in Yazoo City, Mississippi, the first place where I remember worshiping. I have seen it as an adult, but even after we moved from there, that place, I mean, I knew the shape of it. I knew the look of it. It stayed with me. And it was one of those kinds of buses, as I remember mm-hmm. it. It was mm-hmm. a fairly small one, small town, but it had red carpet, stained glass windows, a center aisle leading toward a raised chancel with an altar in the center behind an altar rail for kneeling. Yeah. Really typical. And my family and I, we always sat in the front left pew where we mm-hmm. could see the pulpit, which was off to the side, and most especially the altar, That is my primary memory of the space, just taking in everything that was happening at the altar when I was five years old. I have just described a very typical 20th century Episcopal church But as I think about how I was being formed in my early years, I realize now how the centrality of that altar, and especially the experience of being welcomed to receive communion as a child, that really influenced my early images of God. I remember it better than Mm -hmm. any Sunday school lesson I ever received. More than anything, I felt welcomed at that table, and I knew that I
1: belonged. It's the difference in our generations. I couldn't go to communion until I was 15, which was when I was confirmed. And I was one of the few confirmands who actually stayed at church. In those days, confirmation was often a ticket to leave. You'd get confirmed and you'd leave, and your parents thought you'd gotten what you needed to get for whatever it is you wanted to have something, and off you would go. When you mentioned about your own first recollections, It caused me to review the churches that I've been in all my life. And for a long time, I started my life in the Episcopal Church at St. John's Church in Fort Smith, where I was baptized 80 years ago next month. It was a church like the church in Yazoo City. And from there, I moved to a church in suburban St. Louis, which was like the church in Yazoo City. And while I was there at Grace Church in Kirkwood, Missouri, we built a new church, which was a bigger example and a more modern example of the old church and the church you know from Yazoo City. That is, they're all that three-room plan where you have the congregation on one floor and the choir on one floor and then altar and the priest on one floor. And the room would typically, the elevations would change. And the further toward the altar you went, the smaller it got. And indeed, it was smaller, and also fewer and fewer people had privilege of that space. There were times I remember where you couldn't go past the altar rail if you weren't a person in a vestment or the priest in the parish. And so I continued thinking about where I'd been to church, and that I finally got the Vancouver School of Theology, where I started teaching in 1975, and all of the parish church I attended. St. Faith's Anglican Church was like the church in Yazoo City. The chapel of the Epiphany at the seminary was a square room full of chairs, and it had an altar elevation that was about four inches tall, and it was a platform that ran across and the altar was freestanding out in the middle of that. Oh, and that was our gathering space. That is to say, we could move everything out. If the seminary had a dance and the chairs got stacked on the side and the altar got scooted into the sacristy. And I think that's when that room where I worshipped on a daily basis and taught for seven years, that really sort of warped my mind. <laughs> <laughs> the work of which you have experienced for however many years, because it completely changed the physical experience of the space. It was a very democratic space. That is, everybody had access to everywhere. There was no hierarchy in the room. The room that you know from birth and the room I know from birth is very hierarchical. The higher the elevation, the further away it is, and the number of people who have privilege of that space is very small. And the Piffine Chapel in Vancouver had none of those characteristics. It was a box. It had (laughs) chairs. Everybody could get everywhere. The presider could walk one step down and be in the company of the congregation. I hadn't made that pilgrimage through my memory until you (laughs) said something about Yazoo City.
0: So sometimes it's like what we need to learn something new about God can be discovered simply by discovering a new worship place. The building can teach us.
1: The lovely thing about the buildings that you and I know from early life, the priest would stand with those days his back, separately her back, to the congregation. There was a rationale that we could conjure and explain as to how come that was, but it was a fairly frail rationale. And so with the revision of the prayer book beginning in actually 1950, but coming to fruition in 1979, typically the altar was moved away from the wall and we would face, I mean, as a priest, I would face the congregation. That changed the ballgame for the clergy. What it did for congregations, I'm sure, had its own significance. But when I had the table, as it came to be called, in between, in the midst of us, Even if you had a hierarchical building with the table in the midst, it changed the theological dynamic remarkably. And then when you settle the building down, so it's all one volume, it changes things profoundly again. And again, teaches you, if you ask the question about where is God, the Gothic building, which is what you and I know from our upbringing, suggests that God is out beyond the East Wall, just further down the way beyond the altar. But the Chapel of the Epiphany at VSD, God was in the house.
0: Right there in the midst.
1: With all of us, yeah.
0: that you and I share in common is the chapel yeah. at the Seminary of the Southwest, and I have to tell you that when I first became a student there, well, it sounds like what happened to you happened to me. It warped my mind, <laughs> and yeah. frankly, at first, I disliked that chapel. Mm-hmm. It's unique, but I felt uncomfortable inside of that space. Describe it for our listeners, and correct me if I'm misremembering anything, but the space is asymmetrical. With a high windowless stone wall on one side that curves in toward the altar, like from the left when you're Mm -hmm. facing the altar. And then on the opposite side, there's a clear glass panel doors. The altar sits on just a slightly raised platform, but the true focal point in the space is actually beyond the altar to the large cross that stands in the grounds beyond the building focal point is exterior to the building.
1: It's outside. That's right.
0: And so I grew to finally like the space more <laughs> when I realized that actually that whole design is created to push the inhabitants out. It says to those seminary students that our ministry goes beyond the altar. Our ministry is to seek Christ out in the world.
1: And the windows that you described on what would have been the right-hand wall... When the chapel was built, you could see downtown. You could see the Capitol building and the University of Texas, which is to the south of the seminary. Now, the trees that were planted there could not be inhibited enough to stay low so that all of that could be seen. But the logic of the building was very like what you described. I mean, we were able to see the city. The cross was in the world. It was not contained in the building. I didn't know you in particular had a difficulty with that building, but I know, I, mean, I taught in that room for 23 years, and I learned early on about the discomfort that it caused people because it wasn't like any place they'd ever been. And that was the greatest advantage I had in teaching in that room, because the old habits, the assumptions had to be tested. They didn't necessarily have to be set aside, but they had to be tested. The best example of that was from your description, you know, the altar was sitting on a platform, which was an elliptical platform. It was Mm. attached to the left-hand wall, and then the altar rail was around it, and we would all stand or kneel around the rail. And the cross was out in the yard, but it wasn't symmetrically in the yard relative to the altar. It was off to what would be the right-hand side. So people who had customs that they followed in a conventional church, the church in Yazoo City, Grace Church in Kirkwood, Missouri, where they would come in and do some form of reverence, a bow, a genuflection, a pause. They had to figure out what they were doing Right. <laughs> because the cross wasn't symmetrical to the altar. The right response from my point of view was to walk in there and say, What am I supposed to do? And asking that question over and over and over again was the biggest help to me as a teacher because people were perpetually required to say, what am I doing? What does it mean? Why am I doing it? Do I need to do this? And of course, having chairs in the room, they were duplicates actually of the chairs at Canterbury Cathedral in our mother church in the old country. And they're a dead match, they're the same chair. It was lovely to be able to have chairs and to be able to move them, which is the thing that I found most alluring was the prospect of moving the furniture.
0: I think what I remember so clearly from your class is just what you've described as you required us to think about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Every object, every symbol, every action was to be thought of as an expression of our worship you know, are you reverencing the altar? or Are you reverencing the cross? And why? Those were important questions to be asking. One of the things I think about regularly to this day, we often learned from our mistakes, of course, but I remember Mm -hmm. being, you know, the appointed person to practice presiding at the altar one day with you, and I forgot to do the fraction. (laughs) And the students around me sort of said, you forgot the fraction. (laughs) So I just, you know, broke the bread. And afterwards, you said, that's okay. I think you said something about the point is that the bread has to be broken. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. just break the bread and move on. But now, like, there's a point in the Eucharistic prayer always where we get to the great amen. And then I go, okay, Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) now fraction. (laughs) (laughs) I won't ever forget it. You taught us very well to think about what we see, what we do.
1: I can remember telling generations of students about their conduct at the altar. If you're using with your hands, whatever you're doing with your hands, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old and have it make sense, then don't do it. I've been able to help some people who like flourishes to discipline themselves to a meaningful level, so that whatever they're doing with their hands is not only satisfying to them, but edifying to people in the house.
0: We're all six-year-olds in the congregation, in a way. We are the children of God. So what are the things that you want to see in a worship space? What are the most important, in your opinion, what are the most powerful symbols there?
1: One is having the altar a table. So I usually, in my later writings, always refer to it as an altar table. It ought to look like a table rather than a sarcophagus. And the reason that altars often look like sarcophagi is because that was their model. Their structural model was a sarcophagus. That table needs to be in the middle, not literally in the middle, but in the midst. Secondly, I'd say that the worship space needs to be a single volume, a place where everybody is together. There are two buildings that are particularly near to my heart. One is St. James Church in Austin, where Amy Donahue and I were members and clergy staff for 14 years. And we helped design the current building, which was dedicated in October of 2007. It's a single volume. It's a square room that we use on the diagonal. The experience of the church is round, even Mm -hmm. though the building is square. The benches in it are movable. There's a wonderful manufacturer named Sauder, S-A-U-D-E-R, who makes benches that fit together, but they don't couple. And they're in different sizes. There's a single size, a double size, and a triple size. And you can put them together so they run for the length of a football field if you want to. But you can also curve them and make them into a very soft semicircle, which is what we did. We had a freestanding platform on which the table and the ambo sat. And the choir was behind in, uh, I wanted to say bleachers, but that conjures the wrong picture. It's not the cheering squad. It was a splendid choir. We were circular. The sense of being in the room was round, but it wasn't, it was more like a sphere. It was full. It wasn't a circle that was empty in the middle. It was a solid presence. And then the other church is St. Thomas Church here in the neighborhood of Medina in Seattle, where I just finished consulting with them. They had a building that was built in 1952. And surprisingly enough, it was not the church that you know from Yazoo City or that I know from my youth, St. John's Church in Fort Smith. It was in the shape of a T, although there was a bit of a bump where you would expect the rest of the cross to be, but Mm it wasn't there. They were at a point where they needed to rethink the room. So they invited me. Lex Breckenridge is the rector there from graduate of our seminary. And he invited me down and we went into the rooms. First time I'd ever been in that worship space. And I walked up. The altar was on a very modest platform, maybe six inches. And I thought it was, it was wonderful. And I looked, stood on it and I looked around and I said, Lex, this room wants to be round. And by golly, I persuaded them, or the Holy Spirit persuaded them, I would rather say, that they needed to create rotundity in this space, which they did. Their architect, who was a member of the vestry, became a friend of mine, and managed to put in this T-shape, they put in lateral corners on the T, so that there was a sense of all these chairs, because there were transepts, you see. And the people who sat in the transepts couldn't see the people who sat in the nave. The people who sat in the nave couldn't see the people in the transept. So what we did was to gather the wings together Mm -hmm. by cropping the corners. And it's just a wonderful space, and it has rotundity about it. It has this sense of being gathered because the choir is in the back. I have some satisfaction in having been a part of the evolution of those spaces, and they're both round or Mm -hmm. rotund.
0: I think what you're describing, the centrality of the table the table being Mm -hmm. a table and not a sarcophagus, the rotundity of the room, which allows people to see one another. To me, that's both modern and ancient. It recalls Jesus' Last Supper. It recalls what we believe to be true about how early Christians gathered for that agape meal.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you would say that, and you're right. It is reminiscent of those times, Part of what liturgical renewal of our lifetime has accomplished is the recovery of some of those things that were valuable and lost. There's a line in Eucharistic Prayer B, which says, You've made us worthy to stand before you. That line comes from an ancient text dated in the third century. And this was before we were persuaded of the insidiousness of original sin, when we believed that God had done a good thing with us and had given us privilege to stand. The irony is that in that line, I've stood at the altar table countless times and said that line to a house full of people who were kneeling. And I wanted to say, you've made some of us worthy to stand or something like that. about the history of our worship spaces and you're right. We early on, we were a group of people who gathered in a household around a common table. We might have been standing up or laying down or sitting Mm -hmm. down. At the table was someone who had the gift of public prayer. This would be a person whose acquaintanceship with God and Jesus and the faith of the church was such that she presiding at the table could pray in a way that would teach us the faith of the church. That is to say that the Eucharistic prayer precedes the creeds historically. It was hearing Mary Vanno pray over bread and wine that would teach us the faith of the church. And so you would express it and it would be impressed upon us by hearing it by being present to what you taught us in your praying. You weren't being didactic, but we couldn't help but be taught the faith because of the potency of your praying. It happened, came to pass in those days that we were relatively successful in this gathered prayer and other people would come to join us, which meant the room got pretty crowded. So as a solution to the management of crowds, we moved the table from the midst to one end of the room, And we put it on a platform of some sort so that people could see it and hear. And Mary Vano would travel with the table and she would pray her potent praying from this elevated place at one end of the room. And it doesn't take too much imagination to move from that evangelical success to a Gothic building. That is the elevation of the table and the elevation of the person praying confused the person praying to think that the person praying was what it was all about. So the table that was elevated on this platform for practical reasons, so people could see and hear, that elevation got greater and greater and greater and and further and further and further away from the people who were gathered around the table became a priest-dominated event. The building that you know in Yazoo City and the buildings I've described in my own history are the product of that priestly self-consciousness that made the building important for people like you and me to function at a distance from the faithful, the riffraff, the hoi polloi, who are out there further and further away. What we've recaptured, I think, with this prayer book is some sense of our gatheredness, the fact that we've got to be together to do this. And that's the joyful thing I see in these, or the happy thing I see is in these buildings that are now have mobility to them. They have some sense of circularity. You know, at the seminary, we would change the seating arrangement by the seasons. We would sit one way for Advent. we sit another way for Christmas. We did that for seasons. We weren't capricious about it, but we decided that if we change colors and we change readings, we change themes, we change hymnody and so on, we change the shape of the room. And that's what we did. I think that helped people understand that we could do this in lots of ways.
0: Well, I certainly have adopted that in my own leadership where possible. I've found it really interesting to watch also how people respond to different worship spaces My first job out of seminary was working at St. David's in Austin. St. David's is an old congregation. Now they have two primary worship spaces. The first one was built in 1853, and it is that old grand basilica style. Mm -hmm. Then in 2003, the community built an addition. They needed another worship space. They weren't going to abandon the old worship space, but they wanted to add their capacity. And not only their capacity... They wanted to attract new people. Some people could walk into that old space and you know what that grand style does is it says that God is awesome and big Mm -hmm. and beyond us and transcendent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people can walk into that space and feel that enormity of God and be so comforted by the sense of God's majesty. I was the minister to newcomers at St. David's. My job was to talk to all the new people. What I discovered in talking to new people is that others who visited the space were turned off by the sense of hierarchy. Maybe they'd had some negative experiences of the institutional church in the past, and they associated those negative experiences with that kind of building.
1: Well, you know, one other aspect of that, too, in my experience, is that people don't think they have clothes that are good enough.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't have the right clothes. I can't go to church because I don't have a suit. I don't have heels. What I've got is a pair of blue jeans, so I'm not worthy. I can't go there because I don't fit. I'm not the right kind of person.
0: And that hurts. So St. David's, when they built this new space, they built something like what you have described. A space where everything is open and flat, where the table sits at the same level as the people, where the seating yeah. is all movable, but most frequently the community gathers around so we can yes. see each other. It feels casual. You don't have to have finery to show up there. It was just really interesting to note how different people responded to different spaces and sometimes I would encourage newcomers to actually try out those spaces and ask yes. themselves what it felt like, why they were responding in a certain way. What did each space teach them about who God is and who they are mm-hmm. before God? Yep.
1: When I was teaching in Austin for eight years, I chaired the Architectural Commission for the Diocese of Texas. And one of the things we did on an annual basis for a few years, not many years, but a few at the conference center in the Diocese of Texas, we would have a conference for the weekend. And part of what the structure of the weekend was around the daily office. We would do evening prayer, Compline, morning prayer, the noonday office. And then this was a Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, we'd have the Eucharist. What we would do, we committee members, between each liturgical event, we would change the way the chairs were put. So that when the conferees would come back into the room that was there was no chapel per se, although there is now, but in the room that we used as the prayer place, they would come in and discover how the chairs were. We would pray in one fashion. We'd set it up in choir, you know, facing each other. Then we'd set it up like a bus, or we'd set it up in a circle, or we'd set it up in a half circle, a half moon sort of thing. And at the end of the conference, we did what you did. That is, we'd sit and talk about the experience of the various. It was the best teaching we did. Whatever splendid presentations we made beyond the worship life, the experience of singing and praying together in these various configurations was very edifying to the people. It's precisely for the reasons that you describe. And we would ask those kinds of questions.
0: But it does make it awfully difficult for people to sit in the same place every time. (laughs) When you move around the chairs, I can't sit in my seat.
1: (laughs) I know. One of the parishes here on the island. There was one time when we were having a single service. At that time, there was a service at 8, and then there was one at 10, 15, and we were going to have one service. We were meeting, I think it may have been the annual meeting day or something like that. Apropos of your comment about where you sit, there was a place in the congregation, and it was set up. It had benches in it and there were pews. And there was one place where at 8 o'clock, an older woman always sat. And at ten fifteen an older woman also only sat there each of their customs was to leave their purse there for whatever it was they were gonna do before church. Well, it turned out that when we got to church, there were two purses sitting. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to figure out who was gonna sit there. And it was the sort of thing that everybody saw coming. The whole house, everybody in the room knew that when (laughs) the moment came, something was gonna have to give. And happily, they sat side by side and it went fine. But there was a moment of sort of delightful (laughs) tension in seeing how is this going to play out.
0: A test of Christian grace. testing us some more is this pandemic. It's causing us to think again about our worship spaces. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately because we are now, my community is worshiping outside in small groups. And so we've had to think about seating arrangements, where we were going to be and where's the altar going to go and all those kinds of questions. We are using our columbarium For our worship. And we're so fortunate at St. Margaret's. We've got beautiful outdoor space, and the columbarium is basically a round space. It's got four partial walls, curved walls Mm -hmm. that create a circle and then are open in four places. Those walls, of course, contain the burial niches, also surrounded by the woods, the trees. So we've got the communion of saints, (laughs) the great cloud of witnesses right there with us. We've got nature and the beauty of God's creation with us as well. Woodpeckers are visiting our morning services and the cicadas, they're the choir at the evening (laughs) service.
1: We have a northern flicker that oh. is a woodpecker-like bird that uh-huh. once joined me in a sermon, and it was outside the window. It would start, and I'd stop, and it would peck away, and then <laughs> the congregation would, would cheer. So we incorporated the flicker into the homiletical exercise for the morning. Well, nice. <laughs> so I know something about that.
0: Well, once again, it seems like we are expanding our vision of worship as mm-hmm. the situation demands some new attention to it. Do you think that this pandemic will change either temporarily or permanently some of our worship practices and therefore what our spaces might look like?
1: There's great potential for that, but it's beyond my capacity to know. What I hope we will do essentially is to wait. When you were a student, you were invited to read the work of Gordon Lathrop, a Lutheran liturgical scholar, a friend of mine, friend of ours. And Gordon recently wrote a paper and delivered a talk about the necessity of waiting. And I would extrapolate on what he said by saying that, I'm hopeful that we will not abandon our good teaching in order to do something else that has no theological or liturgical integrity, but is somehow pleasing. I grieve the loss of embodiment, which is what happens to the extent that the worship is happening online or like Mm -hmm. you and I are doing now. The visual realities are present and auditory realities are present. But it strikes me like it's an invitation back to the 15th century, where the congregation would go to church and watch. Of course, in our time, we can see a whole lot better than they could in the 15th century. (laughs) But nonetheless, invites a passivity on our part it risks returning to that priestly event that was what the Reformation undertook to subvert, and did in fact subvert. And I think that what you're doing is probably the best there is. But even at that, we have lost embodiment. We don't have the same physical access to the things, the water, the wine, the oil, each other, like our liturgy requires. I've written and talked with you and others about sacramentality, that is, the way that God acts through physical things, bread, wine, water, oil, hands. This is a time when we're being deprived of that in our conventional liturgical setting, and I grieve that. I told you i write a column for our local newsletter. I wrote a piece a couple of months ago, which I called Sacramental Loss and Sacramental Gain. That is, we've lost... For a time, the sacramental life of the church. But we have gained, I think, potentially, a recovery of the fact that the meals that you have at home are sacramental, that the water that covers the earth is sacramental. There might be some gain to the sacramental lives of people, faithful people, if they're mindful, if they can see that what they do in the nature of things has a sacramental capacity that God has access to them through those meals. It's not necessarily a fair trade, but I do think it's not all loss.
0: There's a kind of anamnesis that we can do to bring the past into our present.
1: Well, and the thing about that anamnesis, if you think in terms of how Paul talked about, we remember his death until he comes. There's Mm -hmm. a forward-looking aspect to that remembrance, too. I mean, the reason that we remember is because of the future. One of the lines of, it's not scripture, but it's almost, it's from the Didache document of the early 2nd century. And in it, the writer of the Didache, who's a pragmatist, whoever wrote it, knows it's about fundamental things. The writer teaches about baptizing, and he says, you use cold running water. If you can't find cold water, use whatever you can find. If it's not running water, use whatever you can find. (laughs) I'm of his mind. He says, if you can bear the Lord's full yoke, you will be perfect. But if you cannot, then do what you can. I have that seared into my heart and into my memory. In this time, I think we're in the season of doing what we can and imagining that that's good enough.
0: So this is a time to proceed with a lot of patience and thoughtfulness. And I pray not too much rigidity. Sometimes we get rigid in our ideas about what is the right kind of worship, what is the right Mm -hmm. kind of space. During the time of Jesus, there was a great deal of emphasis put on the temple in Jerusalem, and it was the Mm -hmm. only place where Jews could take part in the sacrificial rites. And Jesus had this interesting conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 in which she challenges him about that issue. And Jesus tells her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Psalm 96 also says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Ultimately, I don't think that God cares all that much about our buildings. (laughs) I think that God cares about our hearts.
1: I've had the experience of talking with people about their worship places. I begin asking them, well, what do we need? Well, we need the Bible. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need water, oil, bread, and wine. We need each other. That's about it. But then we need shelter. And it's when you introduce shelter that you begin begin (laughs) to hit the landmines, because shelter is an expression of people's history which is what we started with. And what we remember is the shelter that we think is normative, true, necessary, faithful, pleasing to God. I once was the chaplain at a gathering of a group of musicians in Evergreen, Colorado. And thanks to Russell Schultz Widmar, who was Mm -hmm. our friend and teacher, I presided at a Eucharist on a tree stump and it was wonderful, Mm -hmm. simply wonderful. We didn't even have shelter. I mean, we had all the other things we needed including some marvelous music out in the woods. But we had bread and wine on a tree stump.
0: It just doesn't take much to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: And I think God cares more than anything about our hearts. And so that's what we endeavor to do, is to worship God in spirit and and truth.
1: And do the best we can.
0: Do the best we can with what we have (laughs) and trust that it's going to be enough. Bill, you have made my joy complete today. (laughs) Thank you.
1: It's beautiful of you to say so. Thank you. I'm enormously grateful to you for the chance to say hello and chat Mm -hmm. about things that matter.
0: Well, I appreciate you having this conversation today. And I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us also. I do invite any comments or questions that you may have to add to the conversation. Please do listen again next time. And remember that our is not complete without you. This is a production of Saint Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soul, our producer.